0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, well again, welcome. Glad to see people here today. Didn't expect this many people, so kind of surprising to see uh, so many of you here and very thankful that we do have uh, people here today. let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. We're going to be looking at uh, Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians. Um, this is Paul's first uh, letter that he ever wrote. He may have wrote Galatians earlier, but this is one of the early epistles of Paul. And uh, the prayer goes from uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.17 to 3.11. So if you can turn in your Bible uh, to that section, uh, we'll have a word of prayer and begin examining uh, what Paul's saying here. So let's pray. Our Father, we are, again, thankful for your word, thankful for your faithfulness and and giving your word to us and preserving it, giving us the confidence that it is true, it is right, it is what is good, and it is your word to your people for their edification, for their strength, for their uh, equipping, and we're thankful that you've given teachers to uh, explain this word to us, Father, and we ask that you you would help me as I uh, go through these verses to understand them properly and to explain them in a way that will benefit your people. They'll understand, they'll, they'll know, they'll be able to grow. Uh, they'll receive not only doctrinal understanding, Father, but practical understanding on how to pray, uh, how to obey you better, and seek you in a more faithful, uh, consistent way. We pray if there are any here who uh, do not know Christ, that they will hear enough of the gospel in these words to to turn to him uh, from their sin and to believe upon him. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at paul 's prayer in first Thessalonians and sort of the, the background for this uh pr- this sermon is i i did i preached uh about 15, 16 years ago to church, and there's about 203 or 4 sermon, audio sermons out there, and sort of just to keep my uh, sermonizing in place, or to keep it up the, up the pace when I'm not preaching much, is to go back and listen to a lot of those sermons, those series, and I hate listening to myself preach, it, it's terrible, and, uh, but listen to them and think, you know, how can I improve this, if I were to study this today, knowing what I know now what would i do how would i preach this how would i prepare this so i've gone back and redid a lot of those sermons restudying not just you know editing them but restudying and repreparing them and i found out that i really what happens is i can take maybe four or five sermons and reduce it down to two or three. There's a lot, I wouldn't call it filler, but there's a lot of repetition in those sermons that I can really remove and sort of whittle them down to something that I think is more precise and more helpful. So what I've done in a couple of those is do that. And this is one of those. I think I did maybe five sermons on uh, this prayer and boiled it down to two sermons. So we're going to get the first one today, and maybe next year's retreat we'll get the the next one if I draw the short straw again. But anyway, that's sort of the, the background behind these prayers and I really love Paul's prayers they're probably one of my favorite parts of scripture just reading uh, his prayers I've expressed that to many of you how uh, helpful they are to me how unlike anything we pray is when you read Paul's prayers you listen you know why don't I hear people praying this way why don't I hear these words used in in our prayers in our public prayers and even in our private prayers so I I hope to encourage you to pray uh, give you some uh, things to make your prayer life better as well as help shape your language in prayer what we ask God for how we petition him, not only our our attitude and our heart, but the very words that we use uh, to seek him. So again, I said it's divided into two parts. The first part is what motivates Paul to pray this prayer. Uh, There's something driving Paul. I I originally used the word uh, foundation, but what is the source, the spiritual, emotional, uh, intellectual source that is driving Paul to pray this prayer? Did it just something uh, just pop into his head one day? I need to pray for these brethren. Or has there been a, a process going on in Paul's mind, uh, not only by his, his nature of his spiritual life, but also his relationship to these people that is making him pray for them the way that we do? And ask yourself, uh, what motivates you to pray? Why do you pray? And there's a number of reasons why we can pray. Uh, it's your duty. I'm commanded to pray in Scripture, therefore I'm going to pray, whether I feel like it or not. That's a worthy thing. There's many times I don't feel like praying, but I get up and I do anyway. Uh, but I don't think it, there, there's more to Paul's prayer here than duty, as I think we're going to see. Uh, some people pray just because they, they want something. There's a need in their life. There's a, a crisis that they have, and maybe they, they, they offered weak prayers before that or no prayer at all, and now that this crisis has arisen in their life that they need to pray more and seek God's face uh, for these things to be given to them. It could be something that's trivial or it could be something that's a legitimate thing that God promises his people. Uh, It could just be that's the way you're trained. You were taught if you're a good Anglican, a good Catholic, uh, they teach you how to pray, what words to say. Maybe that's your background. You pray it's because your tradition, what you were taught to do. But there's many reasons that we pray. But I, I think Paul's motives here go much deeper. What moved him to pray is much deeper and more profound than uh, any of those examples. Now, I'd like to go ahead and read through the prayer uh, very briefly. And then we'll focus on the, in the first part, which is 2.17 through 3.8. The Bible I'm not quite used to, so I'm not used to opening up to the correct page. First Thessalonians 2.17. Paul says this, "...but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavor more eagerly and with great desire to see your face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us, for what, I, what, what is our hope, our joy, or crown boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy." says so therefore when we could bear it no longer we were willing to, we, I'm sorry therefore when we could bear it no longer we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, that is suffering. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were destined to suffer affliction, just as has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come from us, to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you are always remember us kindly and long, and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, and in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you all? The joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your faith, see you face to face, and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now here's the actual prayer. This has all been a, a build-up to what Paul is going to pray. Now may our God God and Father Himself and the Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish you in your heart establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So that that first part of the seventeen through three eight, the largest section of this uh, prayer, is sort of a Paul explaining the background, his relationship to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians, from the time he was there until this very day and what has happened between them and to them that is now driving him to offer these petitions before God. And to understand this, we have to go all the way back to Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, uh, remember Paul and Silas at the end of Acts 16 are in Philippi, uh, where they were beaten and thrown in prison and then miraculously released through the earthquake. Remember, that's where the, the famous story of the Philippian jailer occurred in Philippi. Um, and then they left Philippi, and then they came to Thessalonica. So Acts 17 starts with Paul's visit to Thessalonica. And from there they go to Acts where we'll see he remained until he received word from Thessalonica. So they arrive there and as was Paul's custom, he always went to the synagogue to preach. That's the first place he preached. Salvation came to the Jews first and then the Gentiles so that message was destined for the Jews. So he always went to the local synagogue or synagogues and preached there. And Typically, there was a couple of responses that happened there. Uh, He would preach the message. He would argue, uh, try to persuade the Jews. And some Jews would accept his message. But by far the majority and normally the leadership would reject his message. And they would uh, throw him out of the synagogue. And there would be a a small group of Jews that went with him. Uh, Sometimes there were God-fearing Gentiles or Greeks there that went with him. And then he would go and take that message to the Gentiles and preach to them and usually by that time, they had enough people to start a church, to found a church. Now this is what the text says here, that Paul, he visited them, that's the, the synagogues, and for three Sabbaths, Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So this is not just, Paul, just get up there and, and read this to them over and over again. He, he explained, he argued, he reasoned, he used scripture to try to convince these people that Jesus was the Christ, this man who lived in in Palestine uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that that is the Christ that you are looking for. And again, some of the Jews believed it. By far, most of them rejected it. And that's what happened here. But there was another thing that happened here that often happened in other places was that the Jews who remained, who rejected this message, uh, it says they became jealous, So imagine you've got a synagogue where you've got a number of people to maybe 40, 50 people. Or imagine our church here. Uh, Somebody comes in and takes away 30% of the congregation just takes him down a street and starts a church there. As elders, we would be pretty be pretty offended. We'd be jealous by that. Here this man comes in and steals away the flock that God gave us. So in a sense, their jealousy was justified, but they should not have been jealous. They should have received the message Paul gave them and believed upon Christ. So this jealousy causes them to act in a very evil way. And what they do is they go out... And they get a a bunch of uh, charlatans, a bunch of evil men to work up a mob and to go against these Jews, these Christians who have gone away. It says in the text here that that there were, I believe, God-fearing Greeks and a number of prominent women that left the synagogue and went with Paul. And then Gentiles would have also been attached to them likewise. So, this mob goes up and starts stirring up all this trouble, uh, stirring up a rebellion against them. And keep in mind, when we, when we hear words about a rebellion in Roman cities, uh, they, they took that very, very seriously. Remember, we often attribute uh, Pilate's giving Christ over to some sort of moral failure, some sort of uh, weakness of his will, where he just couldn't make a decision, so went this way. Where that's not quite the case when a, a, a Roman city went in rebellion, Uh, it was a very serious thing. If that uh, rebellion persisted and uh, increased to where the Roman army took notice of it and sent troops down there to quell it, then normally what they would do is they would just sometimes destroy the whole city. Uh, Sometimes if they were merciful, they would simply take the city council and the governor and execute them. But if they were to come to a city, come to a man like Pilate, and after this rebellion occurred, say, "Okay, how this happened, Pilate?" And Pilate said, "Well, we had this one man, and uh, we, we could have killed him, but we didn't. I let him live, and it let, one thing led to another." And they would have said, "Well, you had one man, and you could have killed him and prevented all this thing, all this stuff." And they probably would have taken Pilate and beheaded him. So the idea of a rebellion in a city was a very, very serious thing. Everybody took it seriously. Often the city, uh, the people would suffer. They would uh, put economic sanctions on them. They would tax them more than they did the other cities. So the whole city suffered when this happened. So this mob arises and, and goes against this congregation. And it was so bad that they finally agreed, well, it seems like Paul is the one who is causing this uprising here. And the church acknowledged this. Let's simply send Paul away and things will be fine. And so that's what they agreed to do. Even the church went back to Paul, a man by the name of Jason, said, look, Paul, if you just leave, as much as we we hate to see you go, this will be calmed down and this rebellion will end we can go back to peace. And so Paul agreed to do that and left. And... Now, normally what Paul did when he went to a city and established a church, he did what? What did he do? Did he start a church and just leave right away? Okay, we've got 15 people here. We're going to set up a church. Here's how you do communion. Here's how you do baptism. I'm gone. No, Paul normally stayed there for a lengthy period of time to instruct those people and to train them. Sometimes he would appoint elders. uh, Sometimes he would leave trusted teachers there. uh, Sometimes he would leave and come back and appoint elders after a certain time lapsed. But normally his, his role, his goal was to equip that church in some way for some length of time to make sure they at least had the basics of Christian understanding, the basics of the gospel. But in this case... He has to go almost immediately. Now we know he did teach them some things. If you read through First uh, and Second Thessalonians, there's places where he says, "Remember when I said to you?" We read this here when he said, "Remember, I reminded you, I taught you when I was there that you are destined to suffer as you are suffering." Uh, so we know he did have some time, but it was probably a very uh, accelerated time where he realized, "I need to flee, I need to leave." So we're going to study just the basics and then go. So Paul leaves his church. This new church, most of these people are are pagans, uh, God-fearing Jews and prominent women and probably a handful of of faithful Jews. And he knows as he's walking away that this church is going to suffer greatly. He's told them, you're going to suffer. So as Paul leaves and as he goes to Athens and begins ministering there, you can imagine the burden that is upon Paul's heart for this church. This fledgling, new, untrained church now it is under the withering discipline of this pagan city. They're all alone. And he had not done what he normally would do. So there was a great consternation in Paul, a great a fear, a great worry that his labor of this, with these people would be in vain because of the suffering that they are enduring. So what happens is Paul waits Uh, He attempts to reach them. Uh, He says a couple times where I tried to get you, but Satan thwarted my efforts. I couldn't get you. Paul uh, can't find any intelligence about them. There's no news coming from them about the situation that they're in. Are, Are they even in existence anymore? Has Satan just wiped them off the face of the earth? And there's this great turmoil and agitation in Paul's heart about the welfare of this church. And we can only imagine how much Paul suffered in his heart for these people. And he does give us some insight into this in 2 Corinthians 11, 26 through 30. Here the apostle speaks of of all the sufferings he's had to endure in his ministry. Uh, He's received 30 lashes from the Jews. That's a a whip with little uh, knots of glass tied to it 30 times over your back, uh, enough to where usually your your lungs or your, your organs would be exposed from that. Uh, he talks about being beaten with rod three, ta- rods three times. He was stoned once. He was shipwrecked and spent nights and days uh, adrift in the sea. Uh, he says this, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and Thirst, often without food, in cold, and in exposure. Now, we could add to this what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 4 through 6, where he describes these afflictions, hardships, beatings, imprisonments, uh, mobs attacked him, uh, labor, sleepless nights, and hunger. Uh, there was exposure, which probably meant he spent uh, a time naked without clothing. Uh, in, in the freezing cold but, uh, And he says apart from these external things There is the daily pressure on me For concern for all the churches So he lists all these things that has happened to him All the, these, these painful, excruciating, uh, aggravating sufferings That he's gone through for the people of God For his own God Remember when God called Paul What did he say to him? excuse me, you will suffer much for the gospel, for my sake. And we have an example of that here, how much Paul actually suffered. But all those things are gone to Paul. They're done with. There may be pain in his body here and there or a crick in his back or something. But he says, now, apart from all those external things, there is the daily pressure on me concerning all of the churches. So there's this daily pressure upon him regarding the churches, even those churches that he has established that have uh, elders who are functional, capable elders. There's still a concern on Paul's heart for these churches. He knows how easily charlatans can come in and, and deceive people and take them away as was happening in the Corinthians church. He knows how even an apostle himself can turn away from the faith as Peter did in Galatians. Uh, so he knows all these things. He knows that all the forces of the world are arrayed against against these young infant churches. And there was this constant pressure upon him regarding these churches. And you can imagine if he felt that way about these established churches, how much he felt about it with this new young infant church with no leaders, with no clear, detailed direction in the faith that he wanted to give them in the midst of this withering persecution. So that's what's going on in Paul's heart. And this earnestness, this passion is what drove Paul to pray this prayer. Now, what we mean by earnestness is it's simply a seriousness. Uh, it reflects our attitudes and actions to the reality of a situation. A person who's in a, let's say you have a son who is sick and has a, a deadly disease, and the father really shows no concern. He just goes out and does his normal business throughout the day. Uh, the mother really shows no uh, difference in the way she acts. Well, th- there's a, a lack of sobriety there. There's a lack of earnestness because their, their actions do not reflect the seriousness, the reality of the situation. Now, when a son hears about his son's sickness, a father hears about his son's sickness, there's going to be an earnestness in his prayer, a soberness in the way he now reacts towards his son. It won't just be flippant. So that's what drive is driving Paul here, this passion, this seriousness, this, in a sense, hopeless desperation. He's going to finally hone his prayers into these people to focus on those things that are important And as we examine the scripture, we find that this idea of earnestness is prayer, and prayer is everywhere. It's not just in here. We find it as sort of the backdrop of many of the teachings of prayer that we have in the scripture. One good example of this is Luke 18, where Christ is teaching them how to pray and not lose heart. So he knows God's people are going to pray, and they're not going to get answers to those prayers right away. So he gives this parable to them so that they will keep praying, keep seeking him specifically so that they will not lose heart in the midst of those trials. And the story is of a woman who's a widow uh, who is seeking refuge from a judge or of a judge. Uh, There's some opponent in court that is against her that is bringing some injustice against her, some unjust charge uh, towards her. And instead of going through the normal means of court, she goes to this judge's house And starts pounding on his door and asking for help. And Christ says that this judge is an ungodly man. He's not a believer. He doesn't fear God in any way. Yet this woman just keeps pounding on his door. And simply out of frustration, out of just a desire to get her out of his hair, he gives her justice right there. Now, Christ's example there is, look, if this man listens to this woman, seeing who he is, how much more is your father, who loves you, willing and going to listen to you when you petition him? So in other words, keep asking, keep seeking, keep praying, knowing that God will answer. And what drives this woman is what? It's an earnestness. This is a widow, probably has children. And a widow who was stripped of her income or stripped of any support, which this sort of indicates what's happening here, is utterly destitute. The only way she's going to make money is either beg or prostitute herself. It was a horrible thing in the ancient world. So there's a desperation that drives this lady. To make these petitions, to make these requests. And they are answered. And Christ encourages us be earnest in your prayers, like this woman is earnest in hers, and be assured that God, who loves you, will hear you. Uh, The Psalms are are filled with earnest, passionate prayer. Uh, We could uh, pick numerous examples. In Psalm 42, David uh, is a man thirsting after God as a deer in a desert. His tears are his food day and night. His soul is in despair. His bones are broken. Uh, Suffering comes upon him like waves come upon the ocean. Uh, Psalm 32, his body is wasting away. He groans all day Lord. Along The Lord's hand, he says, is heavy upon him. In Psalm 63, he watches for God. His soul thirsts for God. His flesh yearns for him as a man in a desert where there is no water. Uh, Janine and I were watching a, a show the other day about um, a, a basically people who get shipwrecked and get lost and have to be recovered. And this one man uh, was in a sailing ship in the middle of nowhere in the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, his, his sailboat went down, and he was in his little raft that had a nice canopy over it, but he had almost no water at all. And he got this little uh, contraption going. It was built in World War II that would filter little bits of water out of the ocean that he could drink. So this man was drinking maybe a you know a hand cup full of water each day. And he makes the comment that, you know, if you'd have asked me at that point, what uh, We'll cut off your hand or we'll give you a glass of water. He said, the pain of that thirst was so great that I would have gladly given my hand for just a glass of water. And he was dead serious. So this idea of thirst, you know, our thirsting is, okay, we go outside, we get hot. Boy, I'm really thirsty. Come in and get a drink. Most of us have never gone a day without water. But it is excruciating to go without thirst. So this is a a passion, an earnestness that David is describing. He wants God so bad, his longing for him is so great that he compares it to a man in a desert with no water. He says in Psalm 55, 16 through 17, As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me, save me evening and morning, and at noon I will complain and moan, and he will hear my voice. I love that, complain. How many of you guys complain and moan to God? Well, David certainly did. It always reminds me of, uh, you ever see, Fiddler on Ruf, Tevia, the way he constantly groans and complains. Well, that that's, seems legitimate at times that we're just so upset, so despondent that we moan and groan and complain to God. And David indicates that he hears that. He hears his voice. He does it day and night, morning, evening, and afternoon. Uh, if you look at some of the words that are used to describe uh, prayer, uh, the word ask is I could only find two times where ask is used in a petition where it says uh, so-and-so asked for something. Where the word cry, where they cried to God, is used 27 times. Uh, The word plead uh, is used over 16 times to refer to the way uh, people call upon God and make requests to him. So these are are passionate cries out to God, that they're earnest in their uh, requests. Uh, David, as well as the other writers of the Psalms, The New Testament as well, that there's an earnestness uh, that we're to have in prayer. Uh, Ephesians 6, 8, be alert with all perseverance in every quest for all the saints. The idea of alert here. uh, Be sober, be ready, uh, be looking out for what is there. Be aware of the world around you as you pray and do it with perseverance in every request, he says. And this is for the saints. We're directing our prayers for the saints. This is the the, the frame of mind. We're to have alertness and perseverance and be ready. As we pray for the saints. Uh, 1 Peter 4 7, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So we're to be sober in our prayers, a sound judgment. Uh, Colossians 4 2 says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So there's a sense of alertness that we find, not alertness, the sense of uh, earnestness that we find in prayer uh, throughout the scripture that also seems to be driving Paul in his prayer as well. These people are are in a desperate situation. Uh, They need God's help, and I'm going to offer my prayers that God will intercede and help these people. And David really, not David, Paul really feared, he says, that unless the labor be in vain, that without his intercession, uh, this Church may not exist the next time I inquire, next time I come up there. So the first thing is earnestness that's driving his prayer. Uh, The second thing is we ended reading Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. We also think thanksgiving is also a part of prayer, and that's a major factor driving Paul in his prayer as well. Our prayer uh, in Paul's prayer is to be giving with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, consider again what's happening here. Let me repeat myself. Paul leaves an infant, immature, untrained, leaderless church in the middle of an anti Christian, hate filled, pagan Jewish world. Uh, He makes every effort to visit there, but is hindered again and again from returning. Uh, He tries to get information or intelligence about that church to know of their progress, and hears nothing. Uh, this could have gone on for more than a year. It's kind of hard to link up the, the letters of Paul to the missionary journeys. Uh, there's just not a lot of detail on the dates, but I figure it could have been anywhere from a year to a year and a half that Paul waited uh, to hear from this church. So it was a lengthy period of time that Paul had this earnestness, this, this concern over the fate of this church. So all that time, that pressure is there uh, for their welfare. It bore down on Paul and and drove him to earnestly pray for this church. Then finally, after all this time, what the text says here is is that when I couldn't take it any longer, he says, the the, the pressure, the burden, I I couldn't bear it anymore. Let me see if I can find where it says that. 3 Verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. So there's all this time gone by where Paul is worrying about this church. And finally, it got to be too much for him. Prayer wasn't enough of an outlet for him. He had to act and do something. And that's something earnestness will often cause us to do. There's times where earnestness causes us to pray. Uh, to seek God diligently and there's time where it causes us to act where we become so overwhelmed that we need to do something and Paul is at this point here I can take it no longer I had to do something so what does Paul do well he's in Athens he's probably going to get ready to go from Athens to somewhere else but he decides to stay in Athens and send Timothy his co-worker to this church to find out about how they were doing, to encourage them, to exhort them, to build them up. In other words, spend some time now, not just go and bring a news report back, but build up this church if it exists and come back with a report to their welfare. And that's exactly what Timothy does. He goes there, uh, he ministers to them, and then he returns back to Paul, giving him news of how the church is doing. And what is the news that he brings back? It's good news. The church thrives. It, just the fact that it existed would have been amazing to Paul. It would have been a miracle in itself. But not only does it exist, but it has, is thriving. It says, for this reason, well, let me skip that. I just read that. Um, This is what Timothy reports. But now, as Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. So there are two things here that brings Paul this joy. First, the good news of their faith and love. Uh, These are two qualities that not only remind him of that the church exists, but shows that the church is being blessed. The two uh, signs or two gifts that a church needs to survive are faith and love. If they have one of those is missing, then that church is dying. It is dead. Paul sees both of these things here. If they have faith, their faith is increasing, and they have love. They express love. So there's two things that are a mark of a church to Paul. Faith and love are there and are increasing. And this would have been inexpressible good news to Paul, that there is a growing, thriving, vibrant, spirit-filled church there that the Lord is blessing. Secondly, Paul rejoices that they always think kindly of him. It's kind of a strange thing to to hear. But what many scholars say as they read through the Thessalonian epistles, it seems that there had been some criticism of Paul that he hadn't gone back and visited the church sooner. You know, Paul, how could you just leave this church for possibly a year and and not go back to them and visit them? Just leave them there on their own, Paul. What a a harsh, cruel master you are. What, What kind of apostle would do that to those people? Uh, knowing what they're suffering and Paul says he did try but he just couldn't get there Satan prevented from doing that so maybe he thought the Thessalonians had that sentiment as well that they were angry that Paul didn't come back and visit them but uh, the part of the good news is that no they they long to see Paul that they love Paul, and they want him to come and visit them. There's no animosity for being left there by themselves to fend for themselves in that desperate situation. So there's the sign of a thriving church, and there's no sign of animosity, no signs of hostility. They long to see Paul as he longs to see them. That was a further relief to Paul's heart. So uh, imagine if after months, perhaps even a year of pressure, uh, concern, even fear over this church, after endless, earnest, passionate uh, prayers on their behalf, after he uh, tries again and again to go there and visit there, Paul finally gets news that they've prospered, they remain in faith and love, and have demonstrated that love by still having a longing to see Paul and the rest. Uh, uh, Imagine uh, the joy Uh, The thankfulness that Paul felt when he heard this news. Uh, Imagine a father and mother uh, hearing of their sick child and they're told by the doctor that that if your child survives the night, uh, your child will be safe. Uh, Imagine the the consternation, uh, the distress, uh, the earnestness, the prayers that these parents would offer for their child that he do survive that night. And imagine when they hear the news from the doctor the next morning that the child will survive. Imagine the the satisfaction, the elation, the joy, the thankfulness in those parents' hearts when they hear of their child surviving. And that's something of what Paul is expressing right now. This great joy uh, that these people have survived, that God has preserved them, and God has protected them. Again, there would be a deep, profound thankfulness for their son's survival. I remember uh, when Geneva, after her initial cancer, she had another, what we thought was a, a, a scare that she had it come back. And the doctors, they gave us no hope at all. They said, it's coming back, it's here, it's inoperable, we're gonna go in and look at it and you know, basically tell you what we already know. And uh, I remember sitting in that doctor's office and the doctor came in and, and told me uh, that it wasn't cancer, that it was something that, that could be fixed. And it and was just this immediate joy this thankfulness that all I could do was just sit in a chair and after shaking a doctor's hand and hugging him and thanking him, just, just fall down and thank God. And then I got up and found the nearest payphone and through my tears called everybody that I knew was waiting and, and, and told them what happened. It was just such good news. I, I, I couldn't contain it. Everybody that I knew, everybody that I could call, I called them to tell them she's safe, she's going to live. That, that's the, the thankfulness I believe Paul has here for these people that they have survived, that they have lived, that God has blessed them, and they are growing. And this is what drives Paul to pray. Again, we also see this thankfulness in different passages in Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16-17. Rejoice. Rejoicing is nothing more than an expression of your thankfulness to God. Rejoice. Always pray without ceasing. How closely related thankfulness and rejoicing are to praying. As we rejoice, we are to pray without ceasing. Ephesians nine fifteen through 20, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to our God and Father. So again, always giving thanks for all things, not just the things that you find are helpful, but all things we are to give thanks for. Again, in New Testament, we could spend months just examining the passages uh, in the prophets, and the Psalms, in the New Testament that speak of thankfulness. But I think it's been adequately expressed here uh, that this is what is driving Paul to pray this prayer with earnestness. There's a thankfulness and there's an earnestness. Now, how does this thanksgiving earnestness express itself in Paul's prayers? He makes, it makes it more earnest to pray towards them. He says this, upon hearing this news, he says, for what thanks can we give to God for you in return? In other words, when we heard this, our, our only response was, how can we thank God for this? What can we ever do? To repay God, to thank Him enough for this news that we've heard of God preserving these people. For all the joy with which we rejoice because of you before our God, as we keep praying more earnestly and day day and night, that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your face. So Paul, upon hearing this news, does not just sit back and say, Well, my prayers are answered. God is so good. Uh, now let's move on to the next thing. There are other churches that need my attention. Uh, let's address them. Now my earnestness, my passion will be poured out upon these churches now that I know that they're safe. You know, the, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So this church is fine. We'll go find another church. No, what happens here is when Paul hears about this church, uh, he becomes even more earnest in praying for them, more devoted to praying for them, more sincere in his prayers, He says again, we keep praying most earnestly or more earnestly night and day that we may see your faces and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So Paul now has a new resolve to help these people, to go to these people, to minister to them, to complete whatever is lacking in their faith. So he doesn't just sit back and say, well, my prayers are answered. Uh, God is good. Let's move on to the next thing. No, there's more diligence, uh, more discipline in seeking to help these people. This intelligence, this news Timothy brings back makes Paul more earnest in praying for the people as we keep praying most earnestly night and day that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking. My fingers are cold. So prayer gives us an increase in our thankfulness. It gives greater comfort and causes our earnestness to grow. Paul is going to pray night and day for these brethren that he may complete the work that is to be done. Uh, Going back to the illustration of the mother and father uh, upon hearing about their son's recovery, uh, out of the comfort and thankfulness, uh, they're most likely to appreciate the blessing of a son more than they were previously. Imagine them being more committed now uh, to raising that son, to protecting him to nurturing him to uh bringing him up to be an only honorable godly uh, compassionate man so when our prayers are answered in these ways it renews our strength it renews our love it renews our vigor to help and that's what paul is doing here now the question i want to end with today is uh why do most of us lack eagerness earnestness and thanksgiving in our prayer life uh and i don't want to be presumptuous here but maybe there's some of you here who uh who kind of nod in agreement what I'm saying and and say, well, you know, uh, Jeff, I think my prayers are earnest enough. I think I'm thankful enough to God that I don't need to worry about that. I'm going to put this earnestness aside. It's there. I'm happy with it. Thankfulness, I'm plenty thankful to God, so I'm going to move on to more important things. Well, I would suggest you move on maybe humility because none of us are as earnest as we should be. None of us are as thankful as we should be. And there's always things that that hinder our earnestness, just being uh, sinful creatures. uh, There's going to be distractions. There's going to be things that that turn us away uh, from being earnest and being thankful for what God has done. And there's two things I'd like to point out that I think will help us. It helped me anyway, thinking about it and studying it. Uh, First of all, there's an an, uh, incorrect view of faith that many of us have, uh, where faith is something... uh, it's not something that has to grow or to be nurtured. It's something there's sort of a, um, a bombastic uh, view of faith. It's inflated, high-sounding faith that does not allow for any earnestness. Uh, some, some would see uh, the constant pressure that Paul felt over the churches, the fear of them failing, uh, not consistent with faith. You know, Paul, what are you worried about, Paul? Paul? You know, is God not able to protect those churches, Paul? You think God uh, needs your help, needs your prayer, needs your earnestness, needs your intercession for that church? And I've had people tell me that about things where you're you're concerned about something and you express a a fear or a worry and an expression of your 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 prayer for this thing. And the thing is, well, don't worry about it. Don't you think God can handle that? Don't you think God is powerful enough to do that? And that's not what faith is. Faith is not just some. Blind confidence that because God says this, he's going to do this. It's part of that, but our faith often has to grow. It has to mature. It has to be instructed and uplifted and upheld by God in order to be effective. So Paul, just, nobody says to Paul, well, just relax, Paul. Trust in God. Uh, keep praying, but, but do away with that earnestness. It's not needed. We know God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Why would God let a church fall like that? Many churches have fallen like that. So the idea, well, you know, faith just says relax, let go, let God do it. And uh, it's not an accurate view of faith, and it removes our earnestness in praying for things the way that we should. Many times we read in the New Testament of uh, the heroic faith of our forefathers. You read what the New Testament says about Abraham. Uh, about Jacob, uh, about some of the prophets, and they're these great, great men of faith, and they were. But when you go and read their histories, their faith was often weak. Their faith needed to be strengthened. Think of Abraham's faith. You know, God tells him that you're going to be a lineage come from you. I'm going to bless you. You'll have a son from Sarah, and I will bless you through that son. And what does Abraham do? Goes and finds a, a maid procreates with her, has a child say, this is my heir. God says, no, that's not what I told you. Uh, He's going down into Egypt and there's a king there who uh, Abraham is afraid that he's going to see Sarah and take him away from her and kill him. Even though God has told him, I want to preserve you. I'm going to keep you. uh, My lineage will come through you and all the nations will be blessed through you. Abraham knows that. Yet what does he do? He lies and say, he's my sister. So there's many examples of these men that have this faith that is described in the New Testament as what appears to be this impregnable faith, this utter confidence in God. And it was there, but it was a faith that had to grow, that had to mature, that had to gain knowledge and be tested. And our faith does have to be tested, brethren, and many times it's earnestness. That brings about uh, the blessings of our faith, the growth and increase of our faith. I'm sure as Paul uh, prayed in earnestness, his faith was strengthened. His faith was encouraged. His faith was grounded in the love and mercy and power of God. Uh, Even Christ himself, uh, who had perfect faith, expressed this He says in Hebrews 5, in the days of his humanity, he offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying and tears to one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devout behavior. get the impression here that Christ, in his human form, uh, prayed as if it was actually possible for him to die. As if the mission that he was on could actually be thwarted. So what did he do with that understanding? Well, he prayed to God. He poured out his heart to him day and night, seeking God's help, seeking his mercy, so that he would succeed. And it says, because of his piety, because of his obedience, he was heard. So this brazen, this brash, presumptuous view of faith often nullifies our earnestness. We just say, let go, just mention it, and God will take care of it. That's not the faith the Bible speaks of. The faith the Bible speaks of is an earnest faith, pleads with God, begs God, uh, seeks him day and night for those things that he promises to give his people. Secondly, uh, it's often to a lack of love uh, of the Lord and his work and his people that we do not express this earnestness and thankfulness. Simply a lack of love, not no love, but a lack of love. If there's one attribute that we must have as a people of God, it is love. That's why when Timothy brings a report back, what are the two things he brings back? Their faith and their love. Without that, uh, the church is done. Uh, One of the great roles of the Spirit, Paul says in Romans 5, his primary roles is to do what? To take the love of God and do what with it? Pour it out into our hearts so that we would have and express that same love that God himself has. When you look at the uh, high priestly prayer, or what I like to call the, the real Lord's prayer in Acts, uh, Roman, uh, John 17, um, remember what the last request Christ makes there in that prayer is. After all the things he prays, what is the last thing he prays for? Well, he says this, Righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you, that you sent me. And I've made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love in which you love me may be in them and I in them. The last thing Christ mentions here is that these people that I revealed you to, that they would have that same love that we would have. So without this love, uh, there's no church and there's no earnestness. There's no thankfulness for what we have. You, The people that you, you love the most are the people that you are thankful for. now you know, it's amazing in Paul's epistles how many times he stops to thank the people he's writing to thank God for them. He mentions that I thank God day and night for you. I thank God for your faith. I thank God for you as a church, as a people. All through the scripture, all through his epistles, Paul is constantly reminding the people of his thankfulness to them. We act, we are passionate, we are earnest about things that we love. We devote ourselves to them. At uh, work, there's a big push in our job to, uh, it's an interesting company, they like us to uh, to make career choices, to, to pick a path that we want to do in the company. There's a lot of avenues open, and, um, and they're really earnest in, in getting us to seek those paths. And one of the things my boss always says is when I talk to him, I'll say, well, what direction can I go to, Arun? What, what can I do? What, what, what roads are there? What paths are there? And he says, well, Jeff, what is your passion? You know, what do you love? And, and it may sound superficial, but he's saying something very profound there. He's saying, look, I know that the things that you love are the things that you'll be good at. The things that you'll devote attention to. If you're not happy, if you don't love what you're doing right now, you're not going to do a good job at it. You're not going to be sincere. But if we find something you love, that you're passionate about, and put you there, we know you're going to do a good job. So there's a a spiritual truth expressed there, I think, in a very uh, humanistic way that is true in the scriptures. That love does motivate us to act to do things, uh, to help, to pray, to be earnest, to be thankful for what we have. But where do we find the most powerful, clearly articulated promise of God's faithfulness and preservation of His people? What would you say that passage is? Where God promises beyond any doubt that He's going to protect His people. Nothing will be able to separate them from Him. Where is that? Romans 8, right? The golden, uh, the golden chain there, Romans 8, 28 through 39. Paul explains that all that God has done for us, how he foreknows us, he predestines us, he justifies us, he glorifies us. So there's this chain that we are bound to God's heart with. And these links to these various great doctrines, the foreknowledge, predestination, electing love of God, the justification, the glorification of us. That That's a chain that links us to God, an unbreakable chain. And it's not just enough for Paul to explain it that is true. He goes deeper than that. After that, he asks a number of rhetorical questions. Uh, He says, what shall we say to these things? Uh, Will he not freely give us all things? Uh, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one that condemns? So there's these questions that are being raised that are to bring about a resounding nobody. Nobody will question God. Nobody will bring a charge against God's elect nobody will condemn God's people and the last question he asks is to me the most magnificent he says who shall separate us from the one, from the love of Christ why is God so passionate about protecting us because he loves us That's the the bind that keeps us to God, is that love. He's utterly devoted. There's nothing that anybody can do, nothing anybody can say. No no creature. He spans all of creation, all of the universe and the world and says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. Why? Because it's God's love that keeps us. It's God's love that protects us. So the idea that what we love, uh, we are thankful for, we are earnest for we will devote ourselves to and many times in our prayers what is lacking is a true deep love for the people that we're praying for you may love them to some degree but I guarantee that the more you love them the greater your love is for those people the more earnest you'll be in your prayer the more thankful you'll be for them and the more you'll be able to minister to them and that's what drove Paul to this prayer this thankfulness he loved the people uh, he was thankful for them. He understood the proper role of faith in driving him to pray, to be earnest for these people. And so he prays for them. He prays night and day. And what is with this idea of love here, uh, what is the first thing he asked for for them? His petitions. He says, may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So his petitions, knowing what love does knowing that it is the sign of a true spirit-filled church. The first thing he prays for them is that God would give them, he would increase this love. Not that there's some gimmick that you can go to uh, that'll increase your love. Not that there's some little program that you work through that'll increase your love for the brethren. He asked God directly, God, Lord, you increase the love in these people's heart. And I love the phrase that he uses here to cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another. The idea here is a a glass just being filled and overflowing with the love of God, flowing off the table, across the floor, out into the street. That's the idea of what Paul is talking about here. There would be an, an abounding amount of love. He uses prepositions and adjectives to increase, overflow, and abound in love for one another. Not just one another, but for those who are outside the church as well the world around you that love is to increase so that it flows through you into other people and for all people he says as we also do for you so if we had time if we're going to do next week's sermon we would look more into this idea of love remember how Luther used to preach at times he would get you to a point in a sermon where you're just everybody's at the edge of their seats waiting for what he's about to say next I don't see that happening here but if I was Luther it probably would be and they're at the edge of their seats waiting for the word. And he says, and come back next week. And we hear the rest. So I'm kind of saying that today. This idea of love, it's terribly important. And it's something that Paul relies strictly on God to bring about in the heart of the people. So if I can give you direction from this sermon. Pray. That God's love would abound in our hearts. Go directly to God and ask him. That happened to you. It happened to me. It happened to all the church. That's Paul's first request. What this earnestness, uh, this thankfulness drives him to make this first petition. And that is God's love would abound in all of you. Directly from the hand of God, it would come. So, I hope I've given enough here to encourage you. Uh, If you're an unbeliever here, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then I would encourage you to to think about the love of Christ, uh, that his love caused him to die for the world, to die for the sins of man, so that they might come to him, believe in him. Uh, There's a freedom coming to Christ. There's no restriction if you believe in him. If you call upon his name, he promises anyone who does so will be freely and willingly accepted. There's no list of things you have to do, there's no work you have to perform, there's no effort you have to make. Simply acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you are in need of a savior, and that Christ is the one who can save you. That's what we call faith, salvation by faith alone. And Christ offers that uh, to all who hear, all who hear, and all who come will receive his gift. So we have a word of prayer, and then we have one more song, I believe. And then uh, we'll have a benediction. And and Dan is gone, so I'll be sort of leading that final song. But let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for the the words you've given us. Thank you for the help uh, that you helped me with to explain these things, Lord. We pray you'd uh, help us take them to heart, that you would give us uh, increased love for you, increased adoration for what you've done, increased sense of the great price that Christ paid for our souls uh, dying for us, Father, uh, shedding his blood for us, and that that would cause us to, to be more earnest, more thankful, and, and more helpful and uh, useful to you, Father, in our service to you here, and more helpful to one another. So let us be encouraged, Father. Let us be, uh, receive your grace, and those here who are, are, are still strangers to this message would hear and receive the word, Father. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen.